do you see what you mean about dogs checking out for a bit and then they're like, there's not a lot to work with here. The guy is too small, he's too, like... Tell, tell me I, about I don't, it. I don't think, my life. Yeah, I don't, think, I, <laughs> I don't think it's a judgment on you or Raymond. It's, it's just, it's, it's very easy to dismiss small people. You'll know this yourself. <laughs> and, uh... This week on Walking the Dog, I took Raymond to Walthamstow in East London to stroll with award-winning comedian, taskmaster legend and celebrated novelist Mark Watson. Mark grew up in a cat family. That's domestic cats, by the way. It wasn't some Tiger King setup. But his daughter is a huge dog fan. So I think he was kind of intrigued to see what this whole dog thing was about. And I like to think Raymond did a very good PR job for the canine world, except for the bit where he had a bit of an accident requiring wet wipes. Let us just agree never to speak of that incident again, Mark. I'm a huge fan of Mark's comedy. He's just a phenomenally good stand-up. And we had the loveliest time. He told me about his passion for writing, which was obviously evident from a really young age. But it was during his university years at Cambridge that he discovered the talent he had for stand-up comedy. Mark also chatted about some of the challenges that came with the pressures of appearing on TV regularly and how he kind of changed his life a bit to focus on work that really made him happy. Now, Mark's obviously funny, but he's also just this very benign, gentle presence. He's the kind of person who'd find a diary and hand it back without reading any of the contents. He's just one of life's good people. I really like Mark, and I know you will too, and I think his date with Raymond was a success. Well, except for the unfortunate toilet break incident requiring wet wipes, but you know, who hasn't experienced that on a date at some point? I really recommend you go and see Mark on tour this year, as he's honestly so fantastic live. Head to markwatsoncomedian.com. Remember to follow us, rate and review. I'll stop talking now and let the man speak for himself. Here's Mark and Raymond. I'm in your hands. Which way should we go? Uh, I think a nice way to go is... Um, I was thinking about getting a coffee, actually. Is that a thing? There's a, there's a cafe, like, halfway down the park sort of thing. I Do mean, just, we'll just go this way. Yeah. I'm so thrilled you said that. I'm going to let you into a little secret. The producer and I have a, a sort of informal test, which is how the guest responds to the suggestion of a coffee. Oh, I'd always... I'm always pro, yeah. I, I'm always looking for opportunities to I'll often get a coffee even if I don't really want or need it you know just yeah. for the, the, the comfort of it or something <laughs> for the feeling of doing it but also if you can't be casual doing a, doing a podcast where you walk a dog I mean I don't know what, what these guys this are up to in your park? I don't know I saw this this morning when I went for a run they, they're up to well they're, they're what it is is proper men doing some stuff with, with wood isn't it but so there's this cafe, but there's a, there's one down further down as well. So Let's go. Yeah. it's quite big the park, and there's also there is a there's a specific dog bit of the park as well, which you sometimes uh, which of course I've never been into, but um, well, a dog seems to like it. <laughs> so I'm going to introduce you, Mark. I'm so delighted you agreed to do this because I know you're a super busy man, especially as you're on tour at the moment, which we're going to discuss. I'm with the multi-talented comedian and writer Mark Watson. And we're in, Mark hasn't got a dog, which we'll, and we'll discuss the reasons for that shortly. But do you want to introduce us to your park? This is Lloyd Park in Walthamstow. Um, it's like the, the grounds of a former sort of stately home type uh, thing, which is now a um, museum and gallery. And the park itself, well, it's got a, we're walking past a lake, a little man-made lake. Uh, there's tennis courts, there's cafe. I mean, it's a big park and it's right, it's right down from... Um, where I live, I'm very um, sort of the, the heart of this bit of Walthamstow. I think I've only lived here a couple of years, and I'm running this park all the time. Um, and it's, um, I mean, it's also a beautiful day. So on a day like this, the park seems very nice, really. There's a farmers market here at the weekends. Of course there is. Of course there is. <laughs> and it really is dog city, actually. That the number of dogs you get in this park generally, but especially at the markets and stuff, is um, off the scale. Well, sometimes I feel a bit sad for Raymond when other dogs sort of check him out. Yeah, what, they feel that he's not... It's a bit no lighty, no likey, <laughs> just to drag that one back up. Yes, it is, um, yeah. <laughs> but I guess, I don't know, maybe it's like being a person. Some people you just know are out of your league without even having to think about it too much. 
It's brutal, Mark. Yeah, but so all forms of being alive are, are brutal in that regard. So we're always being judged by each other. There'll be there'll be people out there that fancy Raymond, I should think. Well, dogs, I mean. He is small, isn't he? Though there's no doubt about that. I wonder if that's the sort of thing that you get a complex about, or if you're if you're that breed of dog, you just expect, you just know that's how big you are. I don't know, like. Well, I know like what you mean. It's a bit like that. That dog is the sort of uh, Winklevoss twins to his Mark Zuckerberg. Yeah, I like to think that Raymond's. It's all churning around in his head. He'll he'll get his revenge one day. Of course it is. Oh dear. <laughs> <laughs> oh, do you mean he's a jock? Yeah, the dog. That, the dog just went athletically after a tennis ball and grabbed it in his mouth and, yeah. Now, Raymond doesn't have a look of a jock about him, I'll give you. <laughs> but Zuckerberg had the last laugh, didn't he? In, in, uh, he really did. In the human analogy. He so really did. Maybe Raymond will one day uh, become a tech pioneer <laughs> of the dog world, whatever the equivalent of that would be. So, Mark, fabulous Mark Watson, who I'm a huge fan of, I have to say. I'm going to be very uncool. And no, say this right from the start. Well, it's very nice. I don't know if it's uncool. I'd rather I, that than if you said I'm not really, <laughs> I'm not I'm, really a fan. But here we are. Hello. Is that a Brussels Griffin? No, it's, it's an Affen Pincher. Oh, Affen Pincher, Mark. See, here you do have almost identical sized dog to Raymond, and it shows German, you. Affen Pincher, Mark. What do you think? I've not heard that before, but uh, fun it's little it dog. Kind of translates as monkey dog. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> Yeah, well, Affen, of course. Well, yeah. um, Raymond is Shih Tzu, which translates as lion dog. There you go. Oh, in their me. own minds, they're a monkey and a lion in the savannah <laughs> or something. This is the cafe I was talking oh, about. Oh, lovely. So, Mark, anyway, yeah, talk sorry, me yeah. through your relationship with dogs or non-relationship with them. Yeah, it kind of is a non-relationship, really. I, I, um, I, I'm sort of... Uh, no animosity towards dogs, but I've just never really had the... Um, the dog gene which most people seem to have where they automatically get kind of um you know excited or sentimental about dogs um i didn't grow up with a dog i I never kind of just never got to know a specific dog particularly well and i I, if anything i find them slightly um not one like raymond but bigger dogs i find quite sort of disconcerting when they look often if you're a runner dogs do just like lollop up to you and look as if they are going to sort of grab you and occasionally they do <laughs> I've been harassed by dogs in this uh, part before and you have to be a good sport about it yeah <coughs> but I do think um yeah I've just never learned to really get on with uh, dogs or be natural around them uh, whereas my daughter who's only seven is absolutely besotted with dogs and she'd like nothing more than to um than to get one so I am in a stage of my life where I you know I need to um I need to at least understand what it, <laughs> I had to get on with dogs um, because one day I probably will cave into that. So, if anything, I thought it would be fun to do this podcast because I've hardly ever walked a dog in my life and haven't really, you know, wanted to. So this is a... I'm not saying I'm averse to it, but I just don't think... I don't know. It, it feels like... Um, I mean, the thing is, when my daughter's a bit older, it would be more about her looking after the dog. But at, at the moment, she's, um, she's still a baby, basically. So it would, it would fall on me to do quite a lot of the actual <laughs> work of it, I think. So yeah, I, basically no, no real history with dogs and that's the, and I, and, um, yeah, I sort of uh, just don't seem to naturally bond with them. But um, me and Raymond are getting on right so far. I think, I think he's a good starter dog because he's not really <laughs> like a dog. No, now you've picked him up, he looks more like a sort of bird or something actually. <laughs> like an owl almost. Yeah, I really like Shih Tzus because they're very... They're sort of playful and vivacious, but there's a real... They're quite judgmental, which I like. Yeah, he does give the impression of judgment, actually, a little bit, I'd say. He sort of looks as if he's thinking it's beneath his dignity to be lifted up in the way that you are, lifting up like a, like a baby. Uh, but there's not a lot you can do about it, is there? Because he's... Uh, dignity or not, he's, he's... You're right, he's sort of got the, fe- the, like the eyes of an 80-year-old, but with the body of a small furry alien. So it's uh, probably I think that, quite a weird that's life. me, really. <laughs> well, fair enough, yeah. Well, apparently, you know, they're obsessed Tibetan um, Buddhist monks are obsessed by them. Really? They're sort of their, their mascot dog. Really? Yeah. yeah. You can sort of see why. There's a sort of slightly monk-like air to him. He doesn't reject earthly pleasures. <laughs> no, very few dogs do in my, uh, in my experience. Dogs are quite into it. Dogs thing is more earthly pleasures. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, you don't see many dogs look at a bowl of food and say, I... I will deprive myself of this because there is a bigger picture. Oh, 
So, um, so no dogs were in the Watson household? No, we had a cat. Uh, but even then, uh, my parents weren't <laughs> that fussed about the cat, really. I mean, they looked after it, but I think they'd, uh, I think they'd adopted him from someone that didn't, you know, so it was, I mean, we were all fond of him, but he lived, we had quite a passive relationship with the cat. Um, Jim, his name was, and in fact, then my sister's got another cat. So it's been a cat household, the Watson, the Watson family yeah. household. And my parents, just not, not huge animal lovers. They were all, uh, always looked after the cats very well, but it is funny. If you say that you don't, that you're not really into animals or certainly dogs it's one of the most unpopular things you can possibly say in this country and, and yeah it feels as if you're like 10 percent away from saying my parents bought animals so that they could uh you know have them for their hides or something but so i should i should uh, emphasize again it was an animal friendly household but we never really also i think i can't remember who but one of the first it, it would have been an uncle or a great uncle or something had a dog and the house really stank of dog in the way yeah. that, and i think the first couple of people I encountered that were dog households, I, I really did feel like it, um, like it smelled very doggy in the houses. In the same way that the first heavy smoker I knew was um, again a great uncle in his house stank of um, cigarettes and so, but it, but I, which I don't actually mind the smell of fags as an adult. But that stale uh, smell of, a, of a, like a, a smoking room in a hotel I used to get. Or a, yeah. so in the case of both dogs. And smoking. I think I, I grew up with sort of like negative, uh, <laughs> negative associations about like what it does to your house and surroundings. And yeah. those things are maybe quite deep rooted because still, if I go to someone's house yeah. that's got a dog, I expect it to really stink of dog. And sometimes, of course, it does, but sometimes not at all. It depends on the dog. I realise that now. Uh, some some um, some breeds are more or less odourless, and some I suppose it, it depends well, how you look after the dog and all sorts of things. As I well, think it's probably that thing a bit like because you've had kids and I'm, in the way that you've probably become immune to oh, yeah. the smell of their poo or something and where yeah, kids are equally disgusting let's be fair <laughs> <laughs> yeah and also you do become immune to the, the shambles that they make of your house and they I zone out noise parents don't they i think so yeah if someone else's kid is making a noise on a plane or something it doesn't really bother me at all if anything i just feel relief that it's not me that has to deal with it <laughs> uh, whereas like a, a loud barking dog is definitely much more likely to get into my brain if it's sort of keeping me awake or something. And again, it's to do with what you're used to, I suppose. It's yeah. to do with what you're accustomed to. Yeah. Should we go this way, Mark? Yeah, yeah. If we go around to the uh, to the, our left now, there's a there's a huge, great expanse of park, including this dog <laughs> enclosure. It's um. Look at the little girl, Mark. She like. Hello. Yeah, you like the dog. <laughs> this dog bit is just well. well I'll show you. But I mean, I don't know how Ray will, Raymond will fare in it because it's quite often big dogs that are a bit early to call him Ray. We're not. We don't know each other. Do you like the name Ray? No, I actually think Raymond is, is, uh, is more distinguished. It certainly suits his kind of uh, his um, air of dignity better, I think. He looks like a Raymond. You can imagine him sort of <laughs> writing a, a novel or something. Although I also liked him being a sort of minor character in The Sweeney. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely quite a... It's a bit 70s as names yeah. go, isn't it? Generally, I'm a fan of dogs having sort of solid human names rather than cutesy names. So tell me, Mark, tell me about the Watson family growing up and this was in Bristol wasn't it yeah I had three younger siblings and the two of them the girls were twins twin sisters identical twins and they were animal animal fans That's confusing to me why um why girls seem to grow up with more not always obviously but my sisters were both really interested in animals in a way that me and my brother weren't and now my daughter is in a way that my son isn't really I don't know if it's because I don't think it's because we surround girls with kind of cute toy animals and stuff because I also did, I feel like that happens to you if you're a boy as well. But something does seem to, something seems to grab small girls a lot of the time about. So I've, I've been surrounded by um, people sort of worshipping animals uh, for, for most of my life, I suppose. Um, but it's just never quite rubbed off on me. Yeah, they were never allowed to, well, I don't know if they ever wanted a dog, probably, but again, they were sort of fobbed off with a cat. I suppose a cat is like what, what your parents wave through if they're not prepared <laughs> to get a dog. And what was your family environment like? Um, well, it was very happy, really. Um, it's, it's sort of suburban Bristol, yeah, we grew up in. And um, it was very nice, quiet childhood, I'd say. Um, your dad is a, a chemistry? It's chemistry, so that's right, yeah. And my mum was a secretary for medical, various medical firms. Um, and for, uh, so she sort of, uh, 
yeah, they both worked. Um, my brother and I got on very well, still do. All of us, actually, the siblings, got on very well. So it was a pretty um, pleasant upbringing. I was the oldest one and sort of the golden boy. And um, oh, this dog is right up Rem's ass, if I can use that phrase. But again, <laughs> I do see what you mean about dogs checking out for a bit and then they're like, there's not, there's not a lot to work with here. The guy is too small, he's too, like... Tell, tell me I, about I don't, it. I don't story think, of my life. Yeah, I don't, think, I, <laughs> I don't think it's a judgment on you or Raymond. It's, it's just, it, it's, it's very easy to dismiss small people. You'll know this yourself. And, uh, <laughs> Your dad was a sort of sciencey person. Uh, yeah. And I always yeah. just think of those households. I knew sciencey households because I grew up with weird bohemian, bohemian weirdos who were in the theatre and on TV and stuff. Right, yeah. And I always was quite jealous of those households with people whose parents were... Yeah, things like chemistry professors or... Yeah, my, my dad was... Being a teacher was, you know... He was a teacher at my school even, so um, I, I had, you know, if anything, more routine than most people because we, he drove me in... We drove into school together once I... This is a secondary school. And, um, yeah, both of them were kind of... I mean, actually, neither of them was strictly nine-to-five person because my dad did a lot of extracurricular stuff at the school and my mum was had irregular eyes, but there definitely was a sort of order to it. And I, I do sometimes think, actually, when I, um, when I talk to people who grew up in more, like, yeah, weird bohemian-type households, it is perhaps harder for them to, um, paradoxically, harder for them to do stuff yeah. in the arts and things, because for a start, there's that pressure that you're, people assume you're bound to. Uh, and also, if you've never done anything different from that, it's quite sort of destabilising, I think. Like, yeah. I think I sought out this life because life was kind of nice and normal and my parents just encouraged me to do what I uh, felt most interested in. It's, it's um, yeah, there's a lot to be said for just providing normality as a parent, I think. There was no expectation on me to do anything in entertainment or any, uh, any of the stuff I have done, so I just kind of found it for, my, for myself. Um, I also didn't have the opposite extreme um, of childhood where you're like massively frustrated because you live in a like an absolute backwater or a shithole which is how people <laughs> end up in bands and stuff but that also isn't you know necessarily healthy because that gives you a sort of um, almost manic desire to escape to the big city I was somewhere in between I had a kind of um, like I had plenty of well not plenty of I had, some, I had opportunity to kind of um, there was plenty going on but this world felt um, really far away at that time. And yeah, in some ways I think that's... And some, I think about now my own kids, not, not wanting them to grow up in a situation that's too weird and removed from what most of their mates and stuff experience. Yeah, it's was your Was your house a funny household? Did people laugh a lot, Mark? Um, yeah. Were you the originator of the comedy a lot? No, my dad was the originator, I think. But he wasn't really a... Um, he wasn't really a sort of... Um, dad joker like people often uh you know like the the cliche of the dad is always like the one that does embarrassing jokes and like wears embarrassing jumps and stuff my dad had quite a dry wit and he his sense of humor is very similar to mine basically but he just never had any ambitions to um perform i remember he did a best man speech at my uncle's wedding there my uncle married about i was about 10 and um they were going on honeymoon to Malaysia and Thailand and stuff like that quite at the time a very ambitious uh, honeymoon and my dad did this speech with like a load of gags and puns about Southeast Asia just a real a cracker of a best man speech it's the first time I'd seen I always knew my dad was funny like round the round the Sunday dinner table but this was different I was thinking mm. fair play this guy's got something and then years later he, he took an assembly um, the teachers used to take turns to present assemblies on Friday in front of the whole school and you could talk about anything you wanted and most of the teachers dreaded it being their turn um, because it was a big school and quite an intimidating thing for her. But again, my dad did something about advertising it or something and he hadn't even told me he was doing it. So when he got up, I was like, Christ, it's, it's my dad. Um, and again, he nailed it. <laughs> so basically he was always um, funny, but he just, uh, I would, he never got anywhere near doing anything like this or wanted to. Uh, but he was the sort of guy, he'd crack a joke about like Boyzone or something in a chemistry lesson. People that have been in his classes would often tell me about, you know, he was one of the sort of teacher that would, um, that would spring a sly gag on you, basically. And my yeah. whole family are like that. There was a sort of typical family culture of mild piss-taking and 
stuff like that. But no one else wanted to uh, perform or did anything like this. And I didn't really necessarily think I wanted to growing up. I just don't think so. I, was, I wanted to write, really. Um, Were you uh, an extrovert? I remember, um, I remember plenty of times at, at parties and things feeling like I, you know, shouldn't be there and um, like typical teenage stuff. I was, mm. I was pretty quiet really and um, I was happy in my room just listening to music. So I think people sometimes ask in interviews, um, were you the class joker, were you like the clown? Because uh, there is, like people often imagine, and it sometimes actually is true, the comedians say, oh, I was the one that made everyone laugh so I wouldn't get bullied or and that was my thing. And that, there are a fair few comedians whose background is that but more of us I think come from a position of just being kind of quiet and slightly lonely and not really out with people at the pub and so you sort of uh, in your 20s you compensate when you become a comedian basically you're getting you're sort of getting your own back for years of being I didn't I wasn't like that lonely or that marginalised but I just didn't feel very confident around people basically and when I look back at the people who were the class clowns um, there were two or three people I can remember who would like wind the teacher up or like you know, stick something on someone's back or chuck stuff around. And those people, in my experience, never did become comedians because they sort of got that out of their system when we were at school. That was, like, the best bit for them. I'm, I'm, of course, I'm generalising, but I think... I reckon most comedians, most stand-ups, weren't uh, extroverts or clowns at school. They were people just, like, quietly stewing on loads of stuff and not really sure how to get out of their system. And that's not just comedians. I think most sort of people in creative industries probably carried a lot of quiet stuff around with them for a while uh, because if you always if you were an extrovert and you always had friends and you always had people to talk to in parties then I don't know where the drive to um, create yeah. stuff would come from again you can't generalize uh, plenty of there are plenty of comedians that are massive personalities on stage and if you meet them in real life they're exactly the same but yeah it's definitely not necessary to be an extrovert to do it if anything it's if it if it if you get to a level of being all right at it stand-up is quite uh, good for introverts because no one else can really talk while you're up there <laughs> yeah. it's your opportunity to finally vent yeah. loads of stuff oh i like it up here Mark. it's nice isn't, isn't it? it yeah pretty in your park it's ever so lovely it's a great park it's i've, I've never lived anywhere with a uh, park Raymond. quite like this yeah it's um and in the summer they have you know fun fairs and circuses and all sorts of business yeah He's an introvert, isn't he? There's no doubt about it. Oh, he's an empath, yeah. He's, he's a real inter And he's... I like him because he's got a very gentle little soul. Yeah, obviously. He really likes Mark, look. Yeah, I think we maybe see something in common with, with, with each other. He's got something attached to him there, has he? He's quite... He gets quite frightened in... of noisy people. Yeah, I'm, oh, I'm the same, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's something to be said for... You know, you don't have to say a lot. You can just kind of hang out quietly. I like to think he says it best when he says nothing at all. Yeah, well, that's just as well, because by the sound of it, he always has said nothing at all, yeah. I think your daughters would love him. Is it two daughters you've got, Mark? No, just, a... just the one daughter. You've got one, uh, one daughter. A son and a daughter. She's very unfazed by dogs, that even ones that were big, like, big enough to knock her over. I, yeah, again, I don't know quite where it came from, but I, I, ever since she was tiny enough to first manifest opinions, uh, <laughs> loving dogs was her. But when she was about... Like four and could uh, just about write. Um, my ex found a, she'd written a little post-it note in her bedroom that just said, I love you dogs. And that was uh, an anonymous, anonymous love letter. So I want to go back to your childhood, Mark. And you, you had ambitions to be a writer. That was always your passion, really. It was really, yeah. Um, I, I think I only started doing stand-up because it felt like a way of being able to write and get stuff out there with the minimum of um, the minimum of hassle, basically, because, you know, it's something I've always liked about doing comedy, really. If, well, stand-up, at least. If, you're, if something pops into your head and you want to say it, you, you, you literally can. There's, there's, no, there's almost no filtering by anyone else. Um, mm. So that appealed to me because at university I tried to get things published in, like, student anthologies and I sent stuff to publishers and I was already writing keenly at university but I didn't really get anywhere I had no idea how to get anywhere so I just grabbed onto stand-up because it was a way of um, being able to 
express something creatively. The, the performance of it was like secondary to me, really. I just wanted to have some sort of outlet. Um, mm, mm. And then after a bit, I came to like doing it uh, like of itself. And I, I, you know, I've always enjoyed doing it. But yeah, it was writing that I really wanted to do. And this was a sort of sneaky way of being a writer, I suppose. But, and you must have been pretty clever because you, you got into Cambridge. Very, very bright. Genius. Yeah. Um, no, I was just quite diligent. I, I was good at English, cause, which was my university subject, because um, I knew, kind of, certainly at, at school level, I knew how to, you know, construct essays and just do the things they want you to do. Basically, I think I got through my school levels. I mean, I was must have been clever enough, but a lot of academic achievement is about just working out what they want and sort of giving it to them, I think, especially with art subjects. I knew how to construct an argument, things like that. And then at university, it was, that all kind of gets ripped up because you almost had to start from scratch. And I felt really behind when I came to university as well because some people had done a lot more prep. They'd had a year out. They'd done a lot more reading. Yeah. Um, so uh, g going to um, Cambridge was quite a... Um, sort of academic culture shock. I mean, I didn't get involved in theatre or writing or comedy or any of it very much at first because that was also um, quite intimidating. Again, if I had been an extrovert, I'd have naturally signed up for all that stuff as soon as I got there. But at school, I did like public speaking and yeah. debating and stuff. I wrote a, play, a, like a, a school play that was on. I definitely already had um, those kind of ambitions. Having said that, I wasn't the sort of here I am, here's the party type kid. I definitely was quite jealous of people that had more interesting stuff about them. So a couple of times I did make stuff up. There was there was one at junior school where I can still just about remember this. Uh, you, some some kid's dad had got quite seriously ill, and they talked about it in assembly, and he got um, loads of attention, including attention from girls. And so I told everyone in the playground that my dad had died and come back to life which you know unless you were the son of Jesus is very different and even then of course it's quite <laughs> controversial or Lazarus I suppose and um I can still remember saying it because I remember we were having a running race and like you had to be first to touch the wall I remember yeah like I remember the feeling of touching the brick wall and then and then making this claim and then I also told my I wrote a, about my family thing like you have to do when you're at school. <laughs> and I oh hello that was just no, there was just, poo on it. Oh dear, leaf, but with poo on it. Oh, oh it was on Ray's bum. Okay. Uh, Ray, this is going to really put Mark off. Well, this is the kind of thing that, you know, you expect this. And again, if you've had kids, you sort of, this is no different from... Uh... <sighs> Sorry, Mark. He's had a bit of an accident, Mark. Yeah, I don't know if it counts as an accident if you're not wearing clothes. <laughs> you know, right? From his point of view, he can sort of just poo as and when, really. That's how I feel dogs sort of go about things, different from being a person. <laughs> <laughs> if you or I did that in the middle of the park, it would be like much harder to come back from. He does this, and yet this won't be marked down in his diary as I, the most I, shameful I, moment of his life. I doubt he'll even think about it as he nods off to sleep, but again, fact, we, we would if it was us. He's already on the pull, as you can see. Yeah, which again, I, you or I would require more time to sort of get our self-esteem back, I think. And have to clean ourselves up. I think so, yeah. I think you'd... you'd You'd certainly you'd be thinking about a shower before you went out on the town properly, but uh, no, he's very resilient, dogs. He's got my dog has got excrement smeared on him, and he's going up chatting up other dogs. Yeah, but again, this maybe other dogs have different expectations. You wouldn't do that with a girl. Well, you ruined our. I was really enjoying Mark's thing. Oh uh, yeah, I, I wrote a thing about my family, and I told, I claimed in it that my grandfather was from Fiji and had played rugby. Uh, for, I was going to say professionally, but it wasn't professional in those days, rugby, but still had played it, like represented Fiji at international level. I wrote, <laughs> uh, drew a picture of him like scoring a try for Fiji. I, I can only think I'd been watching rugby on the TV. I did used to watch quite a lot of, well, I still do That's watch a lot of sport. Lie. Weird lie. Weird and very easily debunked, unfortunately, because at the next parents' evening, my my teacher said to my mum, fascinating about your father, and obviously there's a little bit of confusion. My dad, uh, my grandfather, in fact, come from, um, well, from South Wales. So, um, I, and obviously, I mean, yeah, most people, um, if you had Fijian grandparents, you'd expect to at least look a bit different from me, I, I think. It was not an easily sustainable life. I should have just even gone for Australia or, but I think it perhaps is something to do with just wanting to seem to seem more interesting to people. I think yeah. I think I probably looked at the when it came to writing 
those all about my family, all about my holidays pieces that you have to do a lot of at school, I think I just had this sense that it didn't add up to that much. I didn't have many show-stopping. I remember I had friends whose mum was from Poland and I was quite jealous of that. Like, So, when you were at university, you got into comedy, as you say. Did you join the Footlights? Um, actually, I didn't really formally join. The Footlights would do, like, open sort of open mic type things which I would sometimes get involved in but I didn't properly get in, into it until my last year well the very end of my time there and then there was a, um, uh, like a touring show which I got, so the director encouraged me to audition for and I went for it and got into it and that's how I met Tim Key and uh, came into contact with a lot of people who became important in my life until then Footlights had seemed kind of an intimidating arena to me because it was all well, again, it was about confidence, basically. The sort of people, a lot of the people that were in it were just people that naturally assumed they'd be um, yeah. good at comedy. And also, most of it wasn't stand-up. I, I still wasn't doing stand-up until, really, until I'd kind of left. Um, but I felt like it was, a, was a, it set me on the road to doing this in a way. But it also, I mean, that was a comedy, like a sketch show with five other people. And I, I, I enjoyed being in front of audiences, but I didn't love the intensive rehearsals and the... Yeah and having to stick to stuff, the script, having to be as disciplined as actors are. So I think basically being in that taught me that I'd like to do some sort of comedy, but I'd like to be uh, on my own doing it a lot of the time. <laughs> you did some gigs there, didn't you? I did my first few. I did one in, a, in the student union, one at student ball. But, and it was kind of, it was enough to give me the taste for it because that all went quite well. But then I was mostly doing jokes about the university and the college and incredibly specific stuff which is the sort of thing that yeah. is funny to your mates but I hadn't tried it I, I knew in the bigger world it would be different but again I did I did like it I liked the feeling of being out there on my own um, and uh, obviously if, if you try out stand up and it goes well it is a pretty intoxicating thing the feeling of getting all the love for yourself and just being in, independent and of anything else and um, it's, it's a buzz that never really leaves you but I still didn't think I would I couldn't really imagine doing it uh, professionally or in any serious way I just kept on kind of entering competitions and looking for opportunities to and seeing how far I could push it I still feel like I sort of just fell into the whole career really, but a lot of comedians do do feel like that of my age I think not so much now because a lot of young comedians are more sort of strategic now um, mm. and have more of a career path because just because the industry is much more well defined these days but when I was coming through which is 20 years ago it still still was just about an era where you just sort of had a go at it and saw what happened and then maybe yeah. someone signed you up and things yeah so I most of what happened to me in the first almost 10 years of my career I didn't really feel like I'd planned any of it I just pursued the next thing endlessly there were not as many comedians coming through either at that time it was less competitive I often think it's really tough now for Newer acts. It still was tough, I suppose, but um, you're very, very self-effacing. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I think I was good. I, I, I was good enough to, um, I mean, do well in the competitions and kind of stand out in open mics and things. But yeah, the the whole circuit was a bit smaller, so it wasn't too difficult to get. I like I like signed. that quality though because I think I tend to think most comedians have got a degree of um, humility about what they do because we're all we've all been through bad gigs and difficult times and uh, so there's, there's a degree of gratitude for being able to do what you what you do like when you get to a certain level but that said I mean I suppose the trouble with it is um, a lot of comedy is about uh, being your own product like you mm. have to you, you, you live or die by whether people like you and are impressed by you on some level so it's quite easy to fall into the trap of thinking you have to be self-promoting the whole time not just in your work, but like in the way you talk to people. Um, and some people become very alpha as a result of that because they feel like that's the only way a comedian can act, I suppose. And again, as you say, it does really work for people as well. Some people's sheer desire and just their energy of being successful does translate into success. But I was just never that person. And, um, and also, again, don't really like hanging out with people that much that are like that. <laughs> It seems like you had this period after you did incredibly well at Edinburgh and you were just being nominated for and winning awards all over the shop and then it was it seemed to me like you went 
fairly swiftly into the panel show world. Yeah, too swiftly really, because I, well, yeah, I didn't really feel like I was much good at those shows or liked doing them that much, but that was just what you did if you were doing well in comedy at that point, yeah. Mm. Like even now, I, uh, panel shows are different now as well, TV is different, but yeah, at the time, it was the, a real vogue of uh, Mock the Week and uh, 8 out of 10 Cats and those sort of shows. There was basically an expectation that if you were um, a good stand-up in a sort of Edinburgh Festival way, then yeah, you'd be, the next natural step was to do that and then get more famous. And it sort of did work. I did, I did build up a following as a result of doing those, those shows, but um, it didn't suit me anywhere near as much as it suited a lot of comedians because my style has always been quite kind of discursive and storytelling. I was never like a gag, topical gags type man. So I was trying to sort of shoehorn myself into a thing that didn't really fit me in a way. Um, and I did that for years, just like taking on gigs or jobs that I wasn't that suited to because of a fear of, of turning anything down. You write really interestingly in your... Well, I say you, you did write it, but it's... Um, I listened to it on Audible. Eight Deaths and, and Life After Them, and it's, it's an audiobook, and I really recommend people listen to it because it's, it's memoir, but it's also... There's an element of self-help, and what I loved about it, I found it so inspiring. I really like that. Thank you. Yeah, the book is sort of about how... I tend to feel that, uh, yeah, a lot of self-help or like self-improvement type stuff does uh, comes from the standpoint of, uh, well, a writer who or public figure who's already enormously successful and alpha and, and rich and is basically telling you how you could be like them. And it, often they have had hard times and their stories are quite inspirational, but I still feel like I wanted to write something that was more like, here are things I still struggle with and here is how I deal with them because of things that have happened before. So it is, as you say, sort of a, a memoir and it kind of hopefully morphs into a slightly self-helpy thing. But I don't obviously claim to be a, a life coach or self-help expert or any of that. It, I just wanted to offer a few insights into how you can take on life's disappointments based on having been in a career that is as up and down as, as comedy obviously is. How many books have you published? Uh, there are it? seven novels now, plus this Audible one. Yeah. yeah, which is a lot, but I have been doing it right from the start, since, you know, since I was a student, basically. Yeah. And during this period, you were sort of living the dream in terms of what, as you point out, someone else's dream. Someone, yeah. It was someone else's idea. If it was the movie of becoming a stand-up, that's what you were living. But I don't get the feeling you were particularly happy. No, that's right, because... Uh, I was, you know, I was pushed into playing some like really big arenas that I wasn't ready for and couldn't sell enough tickets for. Uh, the TV shows I was doing were not really representative of what I did on stage, and I couldn't quite get um, commissions to do stuff that would be more written by me or moulded by me. So yeah, basically, in short, I did, I did pursue a lot of stuff that, as you say, was kind of on paper looked like a really good career, and in some ways was, but wasn't intrinsically that satisfying to me and it is quite easy to as you say have a career which ticks all the boxes and looks really good and looks your cv looks great it sounds great when you get introduced but in the core of you you don't really feel like what you're doing is is really you well everyone else as well it's becomes very invested in that idea of you. yeah that's right and then there's your like family get together as well it's like what's yeah. the next thing what when you we see you on tv again what's the and uh, so there becomes this, and again, that comes from the most well-meaning place, but again, it is, if you're not careful, you do start trying to be um, someone else's or, or a collective idea of you as a successful guy without necessarily holding on to the things that matter to you. I definitely did that quite a lot in my late 20s into yeah. 30s, really. Um, it's only in the past few years I've, I've probably started settled back down into doing things which, or just feeling like I've got more control over and more that my career represents my own ambitions more. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's difficult. Your managers just want you to be successful. Your family just want the best for you. As you say, your contemporaries, everyone, uh, I've, I've never come across much malice or schadenfreude or anything like that, but, but I definitely, being some, sort of a people pleaser, I've often tried to do stuff and or look like someone who uh, they wanted me to be, I suppose, is the simplest way of putting it. I'm very, very, um, anxious about upsetting people or disappointing them in any way so I frequently take on things that I don't really want to do 
not just professionally, but just like I'm, I'm, you know, I'd rather do something that put me out quite a bit than face up to the difficulty of having that conversation. <laughs> so would I. <laughs> yeah, right. And you know that, if, that that's like quite a nice character trait, but it also lands you in all sorts of shit. Um, do you are you the sort of person that if you let's say you got a text from a friend inviting you to something and you really didn't want to go, I would spend an hour composing a oh, response. I am that sort of person, yeah, and I'd quite likely still go. <laughs> I, I I mean, yeah. I certainly I definitely it, it, it's it's a quality which can be really generous as a person, but which also leads to, again, more problems down the road. Like I often end up disappointing people more in the end, because rather than just saying a straight no, I try and do the thing they want, and it doesn't really work out. And this is a classic, you know, people pleasing sounds like a fully positive trait, but it can just mean that you haven't got the guts to disappoint people outright. So you just try and sort of half-arse it, and then please no one. (laughs) I I, I envy people who would just say, no to stuff or, or, or walk away from things and say I'm not doing this anymore or like and are able to just draw a line under things because it's not really my temperament that I just try and keep a foot in it like say no but in a way which still makes them think I, I might like if I with this I mean I wanted to do it this is easy but if someone asked me to do a podcast that I didn't want to do yeah. I'd be very unlikely to just say no I'll say oh I'm busy at the moment but maybe maybe in three months and then so of course they come back in three months and <laughs> you end up doing this stupid <laughs> dance and it would have been healthier just to say, I, I don't think I've got time or it's not really for me. And I, have, I know people who are much better at that, but I, I don't seem to be able to risk disappointing people. So, and as I say, that's worse because then you end up saying no five times until they give up and it would have been better if you just... Where does that know. come from, that need to be liked? Well, that's a question for a therapist, I suppose. But, I, I, yeah, I don't really know except that Obviously, part of it is is amplified by being a comedian because your whole job is to try. I mean, not all comedians trade off being likable exactly on stage, but you are. You're looking for people's approval, I suppose. Your, yeah. your job is trying to impress people in exchange for laughter and applause and stuff. So I suppose some of that can easily rub off on your actual personality. But I think I've just always been that person as well. I, I like my dread of having people think badly of me is quite intense, even on very small levels I don't like disappointing my kids if they want things I'm just Aww. really soft basically <laughs> but yeah again it leads to a lot of compromise it leads to you if you're not careful not being honest about what you want or shutting down parts of you or whatever so it's not yeah I think being a people pleaser is a very um is a very mixed blessing basically if you're not if you don't keep a rein on it then you end up spreading yourself really thin you'll know this and being sort of lots of different things to 18 different people but you, you can't fit it all in I see it all the time. I have friends who are very good at just um, saying, even to even to people close to them, just saying, "I'm not. Yeah, I can't do that. I'm not going to do that." And no one, if you set a precedent that that's what you're like, everyone respects that. Oh, we could sit on one of these logs, Mark. Yeah. So, te- oh, we could sit on the bench. What do you prefer? Uh, the logs in the sunshine. Yeah, the sunshine seems nice. Yeah. yeah. So tell me, um, you wrote about this bad period you had, and I want to know how you kind of got through it. It's an ongoing process to try and come out the other side of things like that, I think. Yeah, I, I'd, I felt very dissatisfied and down with everything um, in my early 30s, and I was still outwardly reasonably successful, but it wasn't, just, it wasn't really working for me internally, and um, I still have periods like that all the time. I think the way you get through it is really, I guess, just to surround yourself with people that you trust and that love you and just yeah. support you. I, I had really supportive um, partner and I I just kind of yeah I think it's quite easy to wrap yourself up in, in like retreat further and further into your own brain especially if you are something of an introvert yeah. and the way to get out of hard times is nearly always through other people I think and what they can give to you but of course it can be quite hard to sort of open yourself up to other people when you're in that frame of mind it's why people I find it hard to talk the way out of depression and stuff because you, you you know it can sort of sap your energy and make it make you feel like you don't want to talk to anyone yeah. so if you know somebody that's in a hard situation like that it is sometimes not enough to just say oh I'm here if you want you sometimes do have to dig them out a bit and I was lucky to have people who did that for me and I'm still in the process of trying to become truer to who, who I want to be and who, what I want to do, I suppose. Like, prioritising 
the things that make me happy. The, the, the phrase "do more of what makes you happy" is you see it on like bookmarks and stuff, and it uh, it is a cliche, but it, life sort of almost is as simple as that, really. Try and fill it with the things that make you happy, and avoid things which make you unhappy, even if other people are telling. Of course, you have responsibilities. You can't just. Do you think if what makes you happy is just going around trashing people's cars, you can't really do that. <laughs> but if you can find things that make you happy and which are not hurting other people, I think you're not far off being able to do uh, what life is about. Not always easy, of course, to do that. I want to know about your tour, Mark, because I can't wait to come and see it. And tell me what inspired this show. Um, this can't be it. It's called. It is called that, and it's kind of about... Well, what specifically inspired it was um, doing a um, getting an app which uh, predicts your life expectancy and <laughs> answering a series of questions to find out how long you're going to live. <laughs> and oh, the answer is no. 78 according to this app, so not not too bad. Um, it was something I did in the sort of depths of the pandemic when I was just had more time to think about life and death than I would have liked, basically. And so the show is partly about uh, getting to 40, which happened to be a couple of years ago now, and uh, but it was at the start at the time, it was at the start of the pandemic. Um, I just turned 40, and it felt like an odd life landmark to have at a point where the world was just uh, shutting down. <laughs> so the show came out of that strange period of my life, I guess, basically, and it's sort of about how to get the most out of life and make the most of the time you've got, given how difficult it can be to, um, to get all these things right. I saw... I haven't seen you live for a while, but I saw you... Adam Kay's a good mate of mine, and you were doing the same night when he was at the Apollo. You were... Yeah, I supported him. That is a while ago now. And Adam, of course you were brilliant, Adam, in case you're listening to this and think, what about me? But honestly, Mark, you were so funny. I mean, I had that sort of laughter that... And I had it for you as well, Adam, I'm sorry. (laughs) But I had that sort of laughter... You're really covering your bases with Adam here. He's got a nice house. Oh, I know that, yeah. <laughs> He's a good friend to have. And I like my weekend breaks. Mark. Yeah, no, you certainly don't want to... No. You can't throw all that away just for... And free medical advice, you know? Oh, yeah, I get medical <laughs> advice from by text relatively often, yeah. No, there's absolutely no doubt you want to stay on the I right mean, side of the mountain. it's the dream. Care. Of course it is. Um, so but... you're absolutely right to be as careful as you are every time you mention it. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that's the thing. Doing live comedy, being on stage, which is why it's so nice to be able to tour again you, you do you're reunited with what you sort of got into it for in the first place really which is just the um yeah just the thrill of standing up in front of people and making them laugh you can lose sight of that when you start trying to shove yourself into different tv formats and other different things that you're not suited to and i presume things like taskmaster that you enjoy that that was a great experience yeah. as it is for basically everyone um and there are, there's the odd show like that that kind of celebrates <laughs> weirdness and you know that, that takes a, a looser form and but Taskmaster is kind of a, a special example I mean I, there are other TV shows that I've enjoyed doing and still do enjoy doing but live comedy is where you are um, just fully yourself in front of an audience and kind of in charge of a whole evening and I or even if it's something like that with Adam at least in charge of your bit of it and that's kind of what I like most again that's what you start doing stand-up for just to be to be one guy doing something funny in front of an audience and you, you can forget that as you get consumed by ambition you, you start Do feeling you like you so? should be this other yeah I think TV encourages you to chase huge targets uh, without necessarily staying in touch with what you wanted to do it really works for some people like if you're the sort of comic that well certain comedians and certain personalities just lend themselves really well to uh, to TV and uh, if you're fortunate and you find a TV thing which really works for you then um, you know, I'm certainly not saying that um, you shouldn't aim for TV or any of it but yeah it, you, you, what you should aim for is doing stuff which you're comfortable with and which you feel represents you in the best light and it's what you want to do it's as simple as that really your career should be what you want to do not what people are encouraging you to do and it can be easy to forget that and your last book Contacts which came out was it last year? Um, year before maybe 2020 yeah. yeah yeah. which is a brilliant book I mean it's such a fantastic premise for a book it's a hook yeah it's about a guy who um, about a guy who sends a um, text to his whole phone book saying he's going to kill himself basically is how the book starts yeah and then the the novel follows um, the efforts of various people to sort of track him down and and talk him down but all of them people with connection to him and some sort of reason to be guilty or worried about him Mm. yeah it's a book about you know human connection and um 
the way that we're all sort of responsible for each other to some extent and people do seem to respond to it really well more than most of my books because it is I suppose it is something very personal and and also it did come out at a time when we were all quite isolated from each other just yeah. because of what had happened so maybe it, it felt kind of I'd, I'd written it before the pandemic but it did weirdly feel like it was sort of appropriate to the times we're living yeah. in because a lot of people have experienced you know probably more loneliness than they would have done and yeah which is why a lot of people have got dogs I suppose I've seen a lot of people have you? yeah I've known several people that have got a dog or other animal during the um, like an unusually high ratio I think and I think it is something to do with that and they're really good for mental health Mark yeah so I hear yeah well you're still just angling for it a bit aren't you <laughs> let's see let's see how we go <laughs> And you write really beautifully, but also I think your characters are so strong as well. You know, you understand character, and that comes from being a comic, I suppose, that observation and you're interested in the psychology behind people. I hope so, yeah. And just comes from being a person that's interested in other people, I guess, as well. That's what I've always tried to be. It's sort of why I write books, I think, just to, you know, explore human behaviour and where it comes from and why we are like we are. Do you cry, Mark? I suspect you're quite okay about crying. Um, yeah, I am okay about it. I can't think of a time that I've cried in recent, particularly recent times, but I definitely, I definitely will do, yeah. I'll have a cry <laughs> if the occasion calls for it. And you've, admit, you've had therapy. You can't, you I think still am doing that, yeah. Are you? I do that. Do you think it's useful? Yeah, very useful. It's only been a few months and I think it, it is a kind of long haul to yeah. get. Um, but I always worried that it wouldn't, be useful or that it would be too hard to find the right person uh, or that it would just not work remotely because I've had to do it all on Zoom and stuff but I have not found any of those things to be a real problem and it is just kind of like a sort of a mental workout but a healthy one I think yeah I think it's something that most people would benefit from in some way just um, examining yourself and, and your thoughts a bit more the one benefit I've had from it is really um, it doesn't stop me reacting in the way I would have reacted to things, but I sort of understand the origins behind Yeah, it. that's right. I think it's about being more familiar with your own thought processes yeah. and patterns. And then if you can see those coming, that's half of the battle, isn't it? But it's, it's healthy to be made yeah. to challenge your own thoughts and feelings more, I think. A lot of us could do with that, I reckon. Come on, Ray. Raymond, we're going to say goodbye to Mark now. Have you had a nice time with him? I think we've had a pretty nice time together on the whole. Yeah. Oh, he really gravitates towards your energy. Well, I'm glad to hear that. I wish, I wish that I'd work with more people. But it's been a pleasure to meet you, Raymond. It's because it's you're gentle, Mark. He likes gentle people. Yeah, not all dogs seem to be in the market for that, but he, he, we're kindred <laughs> spirits. Oh, Mark, I love meeting you. Say goodbye, Raymond. Bye, Raymond. Nice to meet you. And uh, see you again. I really hope you enjoyed listening to that and do remember to rate, review and subscribe on iTunes.